Hey, 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 everybody. Happy New Year's. It is 2019, and we are hitting the ground running with a live stream the day of. As the year turns, we are ready to go. And as always, it is so much fun to discuss new material, and this fandom is brimming with lots of great takes, especially with so much new things to digest. And uh, with that, uh, keeping in, in with our trend of getting lots of different takes from lots of different people, we have some great guests lined up for you all today. We are, of course, going through the book in sort of in order. We're jumping around a little bit, but we have lots of different things to talk about. So today, our guests are uh, people that I imagine you all have heard of. And if you haven't, then what are you doing with your lives? Both of these two have fantastic podcasts that I am a fan of on my own and uh, very happy to spread the word about. So let's start off with returning guest. Both of y'all have been here before, but frequent returning guest, Lady Gwen of Radio Westeros. Hey, Lady Gwen, how you doing? Hello, I'm great. Happy New Year. Um, great to be here today. Uh, it's been a while since I've joined you for one of these and uh, excited to talk some fire and blood with you all. Yeah, it's been a while because we didn't have a Game of Thrones TV season. That's our normal collaboration, um, recurring collaboration. But we also are working on Dance of the Dragons together. Uh, it'll be our first like fully scripted collaboration. We've collaborated a little bit here and there on scripted stuff, but usually just one of us helping the other with uh, a project. This is the first time we've really worked together on something that's really good. It's, it's, it's going well. We've, we've got a lot of the early uh, pre-dance stuff written, and the rest is outlined, so... We're not sure when that's coming out, but it should be fun. What else do you guys have coming up uh, from Radio Westeros? Well, you know, uh, we just released our first episode on the Duncan Egg Tales. So we uh, that was uh, last month. I'm currently working on the Sorn Sword. Should be coming out sometime later in this month. And uh, once we make our way through that, who knows what? Like you said, Dance of the Dragons. Who knows what'll come after that. Right on. Cool. Well, I'm sure it'll be good, whatever you guys decide to do. Our other guest is from the podcast Girls Gone Canon, as well as Drunk A Song of Ice and History. Drunk Drunk A Song Song of Ice and Fire History. Who's drunk now? Apparently. (laughs) Apparently me. But uh, so, hi, Chloe. Good to see you. And also, of course, I should also say that you are one of the co-organizers of Ice and Fire Con. Yeah, I do a lot of staff work for Ice and Fire Con that's coming up end of April. So if you guys haven't heard about it, check it out online. Uh, Aziz, Ashea, Lady Gwyn, they all actually come out to Ice and Fire Con now. Uh, I think, Lady Gwyn, this will be your second annual. Yep. So, you know, just going to call it that. It's really second time, <laughs> but it makes it sound fancier. <laughs> but yeah, we all hang out at that. Uh, that's really fun. And yeah, Girls Gone Canon, we're doing... Uh, point of view by point of view, character analysis, chapter rereads. We right now are on Sansa Stark. We just had Lady Gwyn on for the end of Storm of Swords. And we're actually having Ashea on in a couple weeks here for Elaine 2. So we are really excited for that. I do that with Eliana. You might know her from Maester Monthly podcast and also from uh, Reddit, A Song of Ice and Fire forum. Right on. Very cool. Yeah, so definitely check out Girls Gone Canon if you haven't yet. The, they launched the show, I was almost, I almost said this year. 
that's that's that time of year where we <laughs> where we uh, misspeak about what year it is. So I'm getting that started uh, right away too. <laughs> so yeah, check them out. Uh, I really enjoy their discussions, and uh, it's a really cool uh, tweak to the ch uh, chapter reread format, going by POV by POV. So you really get to dig deep into each character, which is. I, I particularly appreciate that. That's one of the things we like to do with with our show in a different way is to you know really hone in on individual parts of the story and focus on that. So, yeah, that really speaks to me. So let's see here. Let's let me ta tell you guys what we're going to talk about today, and we'll do a couple of announcements, and then we'll get to it. Um, we're gonna one of the things we've we're with cutting off new material here, coming out with new material. It's also going to be a challenge for us with Thrones of Winter. It's going to be a bit of a challenge for us in season eight because the episodes are longer. Um, is that we don't always know how much we can fit into a two-hour episode. So what we're going to try to do is try to focus on a few major topics, have a couple extra topics for if we have time for them, and then kind of move on from there. As in, whatever we didn't do last time, we'll, we'll do next time. So with that in mind, what we're going to try to do this time is we're going to talk a little bit about Aegon the Uncrowned vis-a-vis -vis the succession issues, because I think succession issues are going to be a big part of A Song of Ice and Fire, and that's one of the things that Fire and Blood is really going to teach us, is how these situations with multiple claims, multiple Targaryens can get handled. Because uh, we all know there's quite a bit of that coming in A Song of Ice and Fire, both with Jon, with Danny, and with Young Griff. So we're also going to talk about the fall of Magor in that uh, same light, because that also raises a lot of succession questions, as well as some other interesting questions that go along with that. Then we're going to talk about Jaehaerys' minority, uh, the early days before he was king, as as Alisanne comes onto the stage as well. She comes a little bit later because she's a little bit younger, but she certainly makes her presence felt very quickly, and we'll have a lot to say about her. That's going to include talking about Septon Moon. We're going to talk about Rogar and Alyssa and Reyna, and of course the fact that Reyna is older, uh, is you know is, is the uh, eldest of the um, of Aenys's kids, is really relevant. And the Golden Wedding, and then the New Tower of Joy, which I think is. It's just a working title a lot of us have given to it. It's uh, Jaehaerys and Alysanne kind of standing down with the King's Guard against Rogar's attempt to keep them from getting married. It has a lot to do with uh, Tower Joy. And I think we, and something to remember about the Tower Joy as we move towards this is that George is going to have to re-explain it. All we've seen of it so far is Ned's uh, flashbacks on it. But it's got to be seen by other people. We're either going to have Bran seeing it in visions or Howland Reed explaining it to somebody or both. And so George has to figure out how he's going to tell us those stories. So that's part of why this is super relevant. Last episode, I suggested, or maybe it was the one before, I suggested that we would be talking about the how the Targaryen family tree was retconned. Uh, we may not get to the Shivers, which I hope to get to today, but if we don't, I will de we'll definitely talk about the retcon of that tree because I, I don't want to leave that hanging for another episode after we've done that already. So, anyway, that's uh, what we're going to get to today. Hopefully we get to all of that. If not, we'll move some of it to the next. Uh, as always, these, these are Tuesday at 6 and every other Friday, we have a Crusader Kings 2 stream, which, hey, how fun. One one of our guests here today is also a player of the Game of Thrones mod for Crusader Kings 2. Uh, Chloe, um, do you have any fun recent Crusader Kings 2 stories that you can share? <sighs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's all Ashea's fault. She ruined my <laughs> life. Um, Ashea told me when the day that it was free, that day on Steam it was free, 
And I spent like maybe $60 on DLC last month when it was on sale. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, No, I just played as Aegon the Conqueror for the first time. I hadn't played as him before. I kind of thought it was too godmotty. And it is a little like he shows up and like half of everyone's like, yeah, you're scary. We're just going to bend the knee and just live our lives still, you know. But then there's a couple wars, but it turned out fun. I did some fun stuff there. But House Dane just took Dorne. We're talking like 130 AC-ish, and House Dane is now in control of all of Dorne, and they're royal, as it should be, so it's going good. (laughs) I like that timeline. (laughs) That's good alternate reality there, yeah. It's fun. (laughs) So, okay, so before we get too deep, uh, or before we get any deep, rather, we're still getting started here, I want to see if, not just from my guests, but you all in the chat, as always, feel free to ask questions, but I want to hear what people's... A Song of Ice and Fire New Year's resolutions are, whether you plan on doing some rereading or whether you plan on writing or if you're in the creative space, recording something in particular, or maybe you haven't thought about it. I'm just curious if anyone does that sort of thing. Um, So, Lady Gwen, is that uh, something you've thought about at all or are you not a resolution type person? I don't make a lot of resolutions, but I'll I'll let y'all in it. On a little secret, right at the moment, I am uh, in between jobs. So my immediate resolution for January is to focus very strongly on creating content. Heck yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I have lots of time on my hands, so I'm going to be writing lots. It's definitely one of those uh, your loss is our gain kind of situations, (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, but uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, It'll work out. Yeah, right on. And (laughs) and what about you, Chloe? What's your, uh, do you have a resolution or any like particular goals for 2019 with regards to the community and fandom? Yeah, I have a couple of writing pieces that have just been, they've just been hanging out. You know, like they're supposed to happen someday and the bones are all there and actually a lot of the flesh is there. We're just looking for some minute details, like maybe, you know, just some sculpting of the flesh, maybe just like kick my own ass to do it. It's just there's a lot going on. So we'll see. My goal is finish. There's two pieces I really want to finish this year. So I'm just banging them out soon, hopefully. Fingers crossed. They're really fun, though. Can you you tease anything about them or are they secret secret? Yes. One, I have to get out sooner than the other because it's just it's time and the book might come out if I don't so it's one of those I'm on a time thing here I'm like sitting there like George go slower <laughs> I'm just kidding uh but it is uh has a lot to deal with uh, has a lot to deal with the Dornish plot in the Winds of Winter and Aegon's plot in the Winds of Winter and kind of an idea of a second uh sack of King's Landing that could be happening soon yeah so the other one is an Ashara part three piece that just is sitting there and I just it's a part I don't care about. It's a part, it's, it's got stuff about Ned Stark, and I'm just like, I don't care about this right now. So There may not be a bigger fan of It'll a shark in the entire fandom. Uh, if you didn't know, well, now you do, folks. Chloe is fan number one of Ashara. Um, okay, so that's cool. Yeah, so hopefully other people are, are sharing their thoughts in the chat. Shea is monitoring that as best as possible. And Ashea is still the best, even in 2019. We're continuing that trend as well. So, yeah, <laughs> trend worth continuing. I uh, want to give a couple of quick shout outs and uh, then we'll get going. Our Facebook group is very active. We have lots of great discussions happening um, in general, but especially now that Fire and Blood is out, there's even more discussions happening. And it's a great place to be. Uh, thanks very much to the mods that keep our group uh, running smoothly and nice and clean and without uh, any sort of trolling. We don't really have that much of that problem. This is a good community for that. But 
when such small problems come up, they are there to take care of it. So thanks very much to the mods. Uh, that is Scott and Thomas and uh, Rebecca and Laura and uh, Jennifer. I believe I named everybody. So thanks to everybody. Oh, and oh, and Ari, of course, I forgot. I almost forgot. And thanks to some of our patrons who keep our show active and feasible on the financial end. Very, uh, very helpful, very useful, very um, important. We wouldn't be able to do this without you guys. So here's our uh, thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, as well as a couple of our dragon riders. We have Talanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. Speaking of Gagasos, I expect to record the Gagasos episode within the next eight to nine days. Uh, it is very close to done. So that should be fun. Lots of blood magic stuff in there. Lots of stuff from Fire and Blood as well. Also, Robert IV of House Ardeacor, Burn King of Blazewater Bay, Rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. You can sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash westeroshistory. We have lots of benefits for members, including bonus episodes, shoutouts, and scripts, and getting access to episodes before their release dates. So check that out if you are so inclined. All right, that is all the announcements and preamble. Let us get this deep discussion underway. So let us start with a couple of things from the last episode, which is fun because we get to let you all guests weigh in on a couple of things that, well, you weren't here last week, so you didn't get to weigh in on some of those things. But some of these questions are things that are very open in the fandom right now, so as many takes as possible is a good thing. One thing is a little bit of uh, confusion that I think a lot of people didn't notice. I didn't even notice it is that in the Kingsmoot chapter, the way it's written, it seems as if it's one horn blast, if read a certain way, but it also kind of seems like three. He writes the horn blast sound three different times, but it's sort of written as if it's one long sound. So people have interpreted it multiple ways. However, I think the correct interpretation is three blasts, uh, because Victorian remembers it that way. And that chapter was written after. So, so a lot of times you can see that as like a meta, like George is clarifying that this was three blasts. Um, do you guys have anything to add to that? Or is that just a, is that how you see it too? Or is, um, something else to it? Yeah. I mean, and also rule of three, I mean, three and seven are the two power numbers in a song of ice and fire. So rule of three in general is a right. That's a good tool. point. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Cool. Um, I, I mentioned last episode that it was interesting, uh, possibly f noteworthy that Visenya, when she married Magor to, uh, I forget which one, Alice Haraway, I think it was, they did the. Valyrian style marriage rather than marriage under the seven and uh, commenter John P suggested that maybe as the eldest it was kind of her duty to keep alive some of those cultural traditions which that's yeah, a good theory um, I think there's other circumstances you know they kind of for one thing I think a Septon wasn't going to do the marriage they just refused so that was part of it but I think that that's also you know an opportunity for her to keep those traditions going do y'all have any thoughts on uh, Valyrian cultural traditions or that uh, that marriage in general? Ceremony, that is? Well, I think the idea um, of raising the idea there of a marriage, two different types of marriages being performed, could be relevant in the main series or slightly before the main yeah, series. Yeah, Melisandre <laughs> married um, Sigorn and, and Alice with a bit of a mm -hmm. little relorism thrown in there. So mm -hmm. that's a good point. What do you think, Chloe? Yeah, I think it's something that we're going to see played with later on when we get into a little bit of the Alisan and Jaehaerys talk uh, with their marriage and how it took place and different things. So 
I definitely want to bring this up again later, but it's an interesting theme that George keeps looping around in these chapters. So like Lady Gwynne said, I'm pretty sure it's going to mean something eventually. Cool. Maybe. Uh, Wooly Ivan, YouTube commenter, suggests maybe the Valyrian steel armor could be protection against the other's weapons. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, it's magical probably, and so is their stuff. So that could be... I'm very... I would be very curious to see what happens when those two clash, uh, both people and others and their weapons. <laughs> so I like that idea. Um, I don't know we have much to say about it other than, yeah, good, good possibility. Uh, Jacqueline Hemmings wants to know if Fire and Blood might be mentioned in World because it is written by Maesters in World. It is a history book in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's not just for us. Uh, same question came up with The World of Ice and Fire. And, well, well, we haven't had a new full novel since either of these have come out. So I could see one or maybe both. Probably not both. That might be a little too much. But do you, what do you guys think? Yes or no? Will we, will we take a guess? If you had to guess, would, will we hear of either Fire and Blood or The World of Ice and Fire being mentioned in uh the winds of winter or in the dream of spring potentially oh oh yeah i mean on a meta level like maybe this could be a book where sam reads something about valyrian marriages being done versus different types of marriages i mean we're sitting here making it a hint that we're thinking about i mean meta level you might see sam find out about it you might have daenerys and her stack of books find out about it. <laughs> right know. on that's true that's very true mm -hmm. what do you think lady gwen Oh, yeah, definitely. I was actually going to mention that stack of books because I, I don't think we know what those books are. Um, so, well, you know, who knows? It could be one of these two. Cheers to mysterious stacks of books. Yes, that's <laughs> that is. Yes, that's a wonderful thing. Those are Check those are books. <laughs> <laughs> nice. OK, so. Um, that is, uh, covers all the questions. One other thing, um, I made a comment about uh, the Immaculate Conception last episode, and a few people didn't like that. So I apologize for anyone that was upset by that. I was trying to make a word, it was just a wordplay, attempt at wordplay, but yeah, bad idea. So sorry for that, guys. All right, so let's move on to our the death of Aegon the Uncrowned, the first major topic of today. Now, of course, like I said, a reason this is important is we may see, we may see some parallels uh, to the way the succession boils down, as well as we could see some parallels with some of the things with regards to dragons, as well as well, a lot of things. Well, let's just get into it. Um, we'll start at the point where he and Reyna, his sister wife, are hiding at Casterly Rock, where Lady Jocasta Lannister notices that Reyna is pregnant. That's eventually going to be Erea and Rayella. And meanwhile, we have the the realm is just in chaos with poor fellows all over the place attacking people and upset with Magor and upset with the Targaryens in general. This is well before this has all been resolved. And of course, Reyna has, uh, Reyna doesn't have her dragon with her at this point. She gets Dreamfire later and Aegon doesn't have a dragon at all. So early on, this is very, to me, this is very familiar to Danny, of course, uh, because she's traveling around and people are offering her help, but they're not, they definitely have something they want from her as well. It's not all, it's definitely not just compassion. So Lady Gwen, we'll start with you. Do you see some of these parallels or other parallels to Danny? Uh, and maybe let us know if you see some other parallels as well. Yeah, no, I, I see the parallels there and the strings, strings attached to everything. 
Um, and they don't have their dragons. Danny didn't have dragons or later she had dragons, I guess. And they were too small. Uh, just that sense of being kind of at everyone's mercy. And, um, that's, yeah. It's not because it's not just about being, having this power and the stuff that you want. They don't just want your dragon and they don't just want your eggs. They want your blood. Like they literally want that. Dra- they, they want to marry you and have your kids. And that's, that's kind of creepy. If not really creepy. Chloe, what do you think about all that? Yeah. It's a complete power thing. It's a claim. It's the kid. It's the blood. Uh, they want all of that. And especially we see it a lot with these female Targaryens throughout these books, even the badass warrior ones that it all boils down to, they were Targaryens in the end. And, you know, whether you speak to the right Lord or whether your family, uh, when they have the throne, they go in the Royal process and people like them, you know, it's kind of your fingers crossed if you're up a stream, you know, with only small dragons. (laughs) Right on, right on. Good take. So meanwhile, in while they're chilling at Casterly Rock and some of these other spots just trying to wait out the chaos, Alice Haraway and Tiana of Pentos arrive from overseas with 600 sellswords. And this is um, something we talked about a, a little bit last episode. But I, this is, if you guys may not know, I had some audio issues at the beginning of last episode. So I didn't get to weigh in as much on Megor. So I wanted to throw a few things out. Not exactly what we talked about last time, a few other things. And also gives you guys an opportunity to weigh in as well. So little uh, two-pronged attack here. Um, so, basically, there's a lot of fishiness around Megor and Tiana and Visenya. And it's even fishier the deeper you look. Of course, the basic idea is that Visenya is... Or, sorry, that Megor is out for 28 days after taking a head wound. And the day, the day, the very day, Visenya dismisses the maesters and lets Tiana take over, he gets up. Like... What? <laughs> like, that's not medicine, right? Like, the day of? Like, come on. So, it's really fishy. Um, so, uh, yeah, what do you guys think about this? Is this just, like, blatant magic? Or am I going a little over with that? Or And, and what do you think? Does this, does this relate to some other stuff? I mean, obviously, Gregor is a, is, a, is a tie-in. But what about other characters who come back? Like, is there anything we read into John here? Or... Anything, uh, any any other undead characters, like maybe Barrick or Catelyn? Um, wait, John's coming in? <laughs> rumor wait, has it. Wait. Rumor has it. <laughs> I don't know what that. I feel like I missed out on something. What book was this in? No, I mean, John's going to take three days, you know, as the savior and all. So I'm just saying, Melisandre needs to get shaping up here with Tiana. Three days. That mm. makes sense. That makes sense. What do you think, Jen? I had a, uh, I can't help but wonder, because I'm always suspicious of, I'm suspicious of everyone, really. I'm suspicious of sorcery. And I actually wondered about the maesters at, like, you know, maybe they well, wanted him to keep. Okay, well, I like what that. What were the idea. maesters doing? Were they actually, yeah, keeping him? Maybe eventually they were going to be like, oh, whoops, we lost him. That's a great take. Because yeah, who wanted him to wake up other than like Visenya and a few other people? <laughs> I mean, the people that woke him up. I mean, and they yeah. show up and he wakes up the next day. At, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's a targ only a mother could love. <laughs> <laughs> right? well, so true. So true. So he gets up, shows his face to the crowd, and then immediately goes to burning warrior's sons in the sept on Rhaenys' hill, and then heads out to kill more poor fellows, which gets us the naming. There's that big battle where we get the naming of of Bitterbridge, and then we get yet another 
mention of yet another comparison to Gregor that I hadn't made before, even though there are so many. This, in this case, mm-hmm. we have Megor chopping the limbs off of Watt the Hewer and keeping him alive, compared to Gregor and Vargo mm-hmm. Hote. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there you go. Right on. Mm-hmm. At least uh, Watt didn't have to eat himself. <laughs> so that we know of. Small mercies. <laughs> But there's, I also want to point out in relation to this Magor black magic stuff that we have not once, but twice in Fire and Blood, do we have an offhand comment about, if by some sorcery your uncle Magor were to rise from the grave, that comment in this case, in this case it was after Jaehaerys has been training a lot, and Jaehaerys is starting to be a good fighter, which is something that a lot of us didn't really suspect, because we were kind of told in the World of Ice and Fire and other books, we kind of hinted at that he wasn't this kind of guy, but apparently Jaehaerys was also a warrior. And so that quote was from his master of arms. He says, if by some sorcery your uncle Megor were to rise from the cave, like, if, oh, okay, so that George just threw that line out there at random, huh? That wasn't meaningful at all, was it? <laughs> and then that same, a very similar line comes out with Balerion, um, when Balerion comes back with Araya, and we hear, many thought that Megor had risen from the grave to, to mount Balerion once again. It's like, okay, so he threw that in there twice. <laughs> all right, so that's pretty strong. Um, then, uh, so now Magor marries Tiana and has three wives. And some interesting things here about this that I wanted to get you guys' takes on. One is that he's he has this multiple marriage. It's the creepiest thing. I just kind of missed this before, or maybe maybe it wasn't in Sons of the Dragon. I don't know. That he has this ceremony amongst the ash and bones of the warrior's sept that he just torched. Like, that's where he has his wedding. Like, that sounds, it's literally like a match... A wedding from hell, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but then we hear that Visenya didn't like Tiana, which is peculiar given her success at bringing Magor back. So, hmm. And Visenya was right, though, wasn't she, to not trust Tiana? <laughs> so, what do you guys think about that? Was yeah. Visenya just, did she kind of read her, or was it more, do you think there was more to it, or? Yeah, I think you know mother's mother's intuition, and maybe you know, <laughs> yeah, sorceress to sorceress. <laughs> that's exactly what I was gonna say. Mom yeah. intuition—they have eyes in the back yeah. of their heads. Like that's a legal thing that happens when you turn into your mom. <laughs> They're good. Yep. And like, if you're a Valyrian mom, I mean, hmm. you gotta have some tricks up your sleeve. You've avoided a lot. <laughs> so there's a uh, a few other things here. Um, to lay some groundwork. Speaking of, this is this is almost literally laying groundwork. Magor, throughout all this, whether he's oh, the Walking Dead or not, he's still acting like a king in some way or another. Although less so once Visenya dies. But he, he, an interesting thing he does is he commands the building of Magor's Holdfast, uh, and then he redoes some of the tunnels. Um, so these tunnels, of course, are a huge deal. Varus uses them a lot, and one day I would really like to find out how. How did Varys learn the secrets of the tunnels? Because we know that at one point, the rat catcher, Cheese, knew his way around them. But then after that incident, all the rat catchers were killed and replaced with cats. So that no person would be able to do that anymore. So who? how did the secrets pass, pass down from that era from whoever to whoever to get to Varys? Mm. I don't know that we could possibly answer that question, but do you guys have any thoughts on that? Or is that just a... Something we're not meant to know. Cats. <laughs> the cats actually arranged it all. They... No kidding. Yeah, no, but <laughs> they build the tunnels. What are you talking actually, about? <laughs> they're pulling all the strings. Uh, but yeah, I mean, someone like look at Blood Raven. 
or any you know someone like blood raven um war uh you know sort of skin changing into a cat uh learning these secrets and maybe this is a way that this you know they become known to others and passed down to someone who knows um or he's just a really good you know puzzle solver <laughs> it could be he may have just put a lot of effort into it just like <laughs> really dedicated. just checked every brick pull it in pull it out <laughs> shift it left shift it right tap on it three times okay next brick yeah. <laughs> to be fair like tyanna probably used these tunnels obviously mm. since she was doing mm-hmm. things for magor i mean i'm sure in her confession the tunnels may have even come out how would she have else crept around mm. the castle i feel like it's like a a master of whisperers learn this thing. information yeah. every time. Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. That's also, by the way, kind of an interesting thing to mention. Real off, as an aside, is that uh, Tiana is kind of mentioned as the first master of whispers. Like that wasn't a thing until she came along and she kind of became that. And it kind of became a position because of her. Almost it seems like um, mm-hmm. they saw that. Oh, yeah, that's useful. Except when they turn on you and kill, poison your wives. But other than that, that was really <laughs> she really. <laughs> She knew a lot of things. I mean, she found Reina and, or, or rather, Rayella and, or, yeah, <laughs> Araya and uh, Reina uh, hiding in the, uh, wherever they were hiding, wherever her mother had them hid. Uh, during Magor's wedding, they were introduced as if uh, dur- during the ceremony. Ugh. That was so sad. sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's such Dang. a bummer. Like Reyna's been through so much. And like the second he's like, you thought you could hide them from me. You're like, ah. <laughs> so meanwhile, mm. poor Aegon the Uncrowned is still stuck out in the West at all this, uh, all this time. But his daughters are born. So we get a sense of how long it's been because he and, and uh, Reyna have their kids. Mm. And that, did I, I did say Rayella, didn't I? Yeah, uh, Reyna, didn't I? I meant to say Rayella and Area. So, oh, these Targaryen names. <laughs> and uh, so that gives us a sense of how long they were trapped at Casterly Rock, almost a, a full term of pregnancy. And we get all these interesting poor fellows running around with some interesting names, some that are, are uh, telling. We have, of course, um, Septon Moon, who we're going to talk about in more detail a bit later, but Poxy Jane Poor, which is to me, I don't know what mm. the deal is with that. That's, a, that's just one letter off from being Jane Poole. <laughs> but this character doesn't seem to have much in common with Jane, poor Jane Poole, poor uh, one of the saddest figures in all of the story. What, um, what did you guys take from that? Was there anything or is it just a similar name? I, I wasn't really sure what to read of that. Because mm. she's really savage. Like that's what she said. She's yeah. like a savage, like vindictive. I could see... Someone having gone through what Jane Poole has gone through becoming really vindictive, but mm. I don't know that her story is heading that way. Yeah, I don't think she is. I think it figured it's just, was just a one of those things that's just a, a similarity, but um, God, what a name. If anything, they both have, uh, like, she's poxy, mm-hmm. so Jane Poole has, you know, her nose is frostbitten, so there is that kind of connection, oh. too. Uh, just the physical malady, but otherwise, I think it's just a fun little like, ah, what if I made a character? I could call her Jane, or because <laughs> she's probably gonna die sadly too and hurt you. So, really, she's savage, whatever. So, so we have while Magor and Visenya are ordering all this building project, they start to once that's underway, they they head out and they start to 
Well, they start to get nasty. They start to burn lots of the riverlands and the westerlands. Each one goes to one and burns lots of it. And, in, in, uh, you know, they divide the, the work up. And this includes the killing the, fa- killing the family of Sir Jeff- Joffrey Doggett, the Red Dog of the Hills, which having his family killed by the Targaryens, that's going to come up big later uh, when Jaehaerys takes the crown. So I wanted to make sure that was the t- stage was set for that. So they head for Old Town. Both of the dragons head for Old Town. And of course, the city freaks out. They're like, holy crap, Magor's coming. And his mom's coming too. And she's not exactly a nice person either. And... But everyone in Old Town's kind of like, eh, we could surrender, except for this High Septon's like, you know, he's a true believer, he's a zealot. But somehow he dies in the night. This is something we covered in, in Sons of the Dragon. We don't need to really rehash this. I just wanted to keep the, 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 our details straight. The point is, they stay there for six months, kind of rearranging things um, after this almost certain poisoning and this new High Septon who's a lot more amiable and... Uh, while that's happening, this is the point we wanted to get to, Aegon takes his chance. He says, okay, well, they're down in Old Town. We can't do anything without a dragon. So they grab, they, they sneak into King's Landing um, in a scene that is maybe reminiscent of something we'll see later with people sneaking into King's Landing and taking the crown. Something like that might happen. What Do you guys see any sort of potential parallel there for this sneaking in in, you know, commoner's gear and... Coming out as a king, does that, does, that, does that strike any chords? I can see it happen with Aegon. I don't know. I, I think that's the next best, you know, chance we have for it is Aegon going and take the throne. But I feel like when he sits it, he's going to yeah, sit he might it. Just, I don't think he's going He might anywhere. just come marching in and triumph. Yeah, I don't know about sneaking in. Yeah, I'm not sure mm-hmm. that... Uh, but it will have that kind of quality they talk about in the Dance of the Dragons and in Princess and the Queen. You know, how he had, you know, the Aegon the Conqueror's sword, Aegon the Conqueror's crown, all the things that made him Aegon the Conqueror. So I'm sure he'll have that. He'll have black fire, he'll right. have a crown, have you know, a, yeah, all the good all stuff. The will be. Yeah, all the symbols. All symbols, the various symbols. Which is- Everything but the blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right. Slay that lie, Which is Danny. what was important there, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we have this... Uh, he sneaks in, they grab their dragons, and then they, then they, the banners are called. Magor emerges from the south, and they have this conflict at the God's Eye. Now, of course, the fact it had to be at the God's Eye, didn't it? We have to have a big black dragon, uh, a couple of dragon battles at the God's Eye. Now we have, what, a few dragon battles at the God's Eye now. So that's clearly important, right? That's clearly foreshadowing. I think maybe, the, I think maybe Damon and Aemon is, a, is a more on-the-nose foreshadowing for what we might be able to see later, but this is, this is important too, um, especially if it's a big black dragon killing uh, a claimant who doesn't have as, you know, <laughs> by force, you know, Magor being Danny in this case, not that Danny is like Magor that much, but uh, she is going to be flying a black dragon. So, do you guys think uh, Young Griff gets a dragon at all, or is that more of a Euron thing, or what are your, in general, what do you think with, with regards to that? Hmm. It's hard to see how that would work out. I mean, with only two known dragons available, and a lot of people that those could be, you know, um, those could go to. Um, if he did, then we'd have to accept that Danny would like in a situation like this, that Danny could potentially be in the position of having to kill one of her own dragons. Which would be yeah, and maybe looking like a kinslayer, things like that. So yeah, mm. <laughs> yep. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think him not having dragons will probably be the thing that actually does him in mm-hmm. in the end. I feel like that's the one thing he won't have, and that's the only thing Danny actually gets. Right? Mm-hmm. Is she gets her dragons, and that's the only the only big you know claim against him that she does get. And I think he'll probably die in the <laughs> end, more than likely. Yeah. Indirectly or directly from the dragon. I think so too. I, I'm a I'm I'm a fan of him dying to wildfire. Uh, that theory, I, I lean towards that one. But I'm, I'm I do not, too. I'm not married to it. Um, what do you think, Lady Gwen? What do you, do you have a prediction for uh, Young Griff's death? Are you on Team Wildfire? Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably. If if I had to pick, like you said, I'm not married to it. I think there's some other valid thoughts, but it's, it seems like a pretty reasonable one given all the themes. Cool. Yeah. We have a couple of super chats here. One from Stannis Baratheon, who wants to know where is Baby Magor, who he says might be Varys's ancestor. That is a mystery that we never really got enough information to solve. It's he apparently died young, um, but we don't really know how or why. If there was any foul play, or if it's just being a baby in a medieval setting, that's just it's hard. Uh, it could be just that, but yeah, we don't know. Um, it's interesting to see someone named Magor, obviously, and we have another Magor in this story. Uh, Magor Towers, who befriends Reyna at the end uh, of her life, which is a nice little uh, anecdote, but probably not relevant to Song of Ice and Fire, but fun. Also a super chat from Bubba Husky, who says, for having Dane fans on tonight, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, rock and roll, house Dane, best house. (laughs) Sparks and Danes, that's it, that's all I need. (laughs) Cool, so let's have our first of two parallel lives of of the day. Uh, the first one is going to be a character we're going to talk about really shortly, Septon Moon. We're basically in that line of, of he's, he's in our sights for, um, for the, the timeline here. Septon Moon, it, to me, has a lot in common with Robert Baratheon. He has a couple of very strong, obvious parallels, being a loud, large man who loves drinking and sleeps with lots of women. He has lots of bastards. He has a really unreasonably strong hatred of the Targaryens, which, of course, Robert had. He just was just just the mention of them makes him angry. He thinks they should all be shoved and killed or pushed back into the sea. And then we have um, so all those things sound a lot like Robert, don't they? We have the bastards. We have hating the Targaryens. We have the size. We have the, the being loud and, um, you know, boisterous and charismatic, uh, despite all that. So that's pretty strong. Yet, the difference here isn't in his um, in his death is that it's a lot like Renly. We have Renly's death here, which is that he's killed in his tent in the middle of, you know, in the midst of his men uh, by with a lot of mystery surrounding it. His throat is slashed open, but there's also poison. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? Why is there both? <laughs> so let's uh, let's go ahead and delve into that. Actually, since we're talking about it, um, I was gonna t- I was gonna hold it till later, but let's we're getting into it now. Let's just do this now. So, Lady Gwen, I know you had some you wrote some stuff in our document here ahead of time. I think if I remember correctly about it's kind of this about some of these same questions, like why was there two methods of killing him and why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's up with that? What do you think? Yeah. Um... I'm kind of looking for my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Where did they go? <laughs> Where did they go? Okay, so um, Yoke Boy and I talked about this yesterday. We, we kind of talked it out. Um, and we think, you know, so you get, you get these two women. Or two, not two women. One woman, but two 
sort of murder weapons. It's like a, a murder on the Orient Express kind of moment. You got two separate would-be killers. Why wouldn't this woman just leave the tent quietly after sharing that poisoned wine with Septa Boone? I mean, she had him. They drank half the half the flagon of wine. She could have just had him finish it, theoretically, or maybe not even. The rest of it was enough to kill four uh, four guardsmen the next day. She could have just left quietly. So I don't think she's, you know, I think we're left to think that she's not the one that cut his throat. We're told poison is a woman's weapon. So, you know, that's that there's so much similarity, though, to the Renly situation. We can't forget that in that case, that woman is not the one, the woman that was in the tent with him is not the one that did the killing. Um, Yoke Boy suggests that the, the cat's paw, the woman, was probably working for the Hightowers. That was his feeling. He felt like, where did she go to? She vanished from the from the encampment, the walled city right there. So if she went into the safety of the city, you know, that, that would seem make like sense. a kind of a reasonable thing. You get ideas like she was, she had a glamour on or something like that too. Yeah. But basically, our verdict was murder by person or persons unknown. Hmm. Uh, and you mentioned uh did, do it. did you mention murder on the orient express in our notes that's uh i haven't seen yes. that movie but is that kind of i guess the point is that there was maybe two people trying to kill someone at the same time and that confounds yeah. the whole thing because so, yeah yeah so spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to spoil <laughs> movies that are like 30 40 years old movies or based on an agatha christie novel from god you know even probably 75 years ago oh wow um, <laughs> Bunch of people killed the same per- killed the person, you know. Everybody went in and stabbed him, and you don't know who really did it. That's the you know. I think we're just left to maybe not know who really did it. So, so this uh, so uh, Chloe, what do you think about uh, this whole murder business? This whole salacious affair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he really made himself a target. Uh, obviously, I mean, he rose up, and I mean when. When the small folk rise up, you know, the world is big, but little people turn it around. So in their own eyes, when small folk and the religious people in his following rose up, he was very dangerous with the things he got them, you know, going for. I mean, we see it echoed again, same kind of idea with the people that rise up in King's Landing and kill the dragons in the dance. Uh, He had a lot of people gunning for him. They were like, this guy's got to go. We got to take out the head. So I, I do love that idea of the high tower cat spa, especially since they have been, you know, just itching for power, obviously, uh, since the power vacuum began when Aegon landed. So it would make a lot of sense. Mm, yes. Solved their problem, would solve their problem of not wanting to take up arms against the Rowans and the Elkarts and kind of, uh, what do we do? The Targaryens want to get rid of this guy. We can't fight our fellow lords over it, though. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, those are good tags. I like that theory a lot. I think it makes the high towers make the most sense. And I think they're probably the ones who killed that high septon too. So them taking out uh, key figures to stop, you know, to, to halt large problems from happening. If you can just take one guy out and end a war, then yeah, uh, you just got to be honest about it. Not be like Tywin where you say, oh, is it more honest to kill 10 men at dinner and then actually kill 10,000 men at dinner and act yeah, like you only right. killed 10 men at dinner? Yeah, okay. It's a couple of people. Right. <laughs> Uh, super chat from Chicksaloob Rob. Th- Happy New Year to my fellow Westorians. Catch the stream tomorrow. Thanks, Rob. Yes, as if you can't catch the streams or if you want to can only catch part of it, they're always up on podcast form 
within usually within 24 to 36 hours after the completion of the live stream. So staying on the for uh, the topic of mysterious deaths, um, I wanted you guys to weigh in on Megor's death as well, just what you think may have happened. Uh, since we're talking about mysterious deaths, it seems like a good uh, time to pivot over to that. Now, Septon Moon's death actually happens well after Megor's death. I want to be clear on that, but this is a nice little subtopic of mysterious deaths around this time, whether it's Septon Moon, whether it's Megor himself, whether it's uh, the High Septon right before Megor and Visenya arrive, whether it's, well, there's lots of possibilities here. So, um, first of all, Ashea's got the, uh, the cool art of um, Megor's death going to be put on screen here. And one theory I hadn't considered and that we didn't talk about last time, which I'll throw out to you guys to consider as well as whatever other takes you have, is that it could be Faceless Manish, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's so mysterious. Anytime a death is so mysterious and so who did it and you really don't have a good answer, that might mean that it was the Faceless Man because they're so good at exactly that. So mm -hmm. I think, Jen, I think you had some particularly interesting notes that I saw in here. So we'll start with you. Yes. Yeah. Seeing as how you mentioned this, Fire and Blood suggests person or persons unknown. There's that phrase again. Via a hidden passage. And then later on, they suggest that maybe Reyna was responsible. Then I was rereading re over the last few days, and I noticed that they mentioned about Reyna that Dreamfire is noted to have already produced two clutches of eggs. So I thought, well, that's interesting. That means Reyna's got a bunch of eggs, potentially, because she's had Dreamfire and, you know, who knows when those eggs were produced. Are these Chekhov's eggs? We know you're on Balon. We know what the <laughs> price of a king's death is, <laughs> um, apparently. From the Faceless Men. So could the Faceless Men, or someone similar, have been hired to do this deed for Reyna? You know, obviously Fire and Blood says, well, she was long gone. I don't know how she could have possibly done that. But rumor has it that <laughs> she, she was responsible. So she hired someone with one of her, using one of her uh, dragon's eggs. So motive is there for sure for Reyna. Oh. No question. Uh, yeah. The op the the opportunity is well that's the faceless for the faceless men to figure that part out mm -hmm. uh, and the money like you said the egg and all that even the same form of payment we've seen before that's a good theory I really like it Chloe what do you think I feel like this book especially really got me in the mood to realize wow there are dragon eggs that we didn't really think about that we didn't know about I think George really got that across that there were a bunch of clutches of eggs that just might be around <laughs> uh, and. I mean, eggs are power, dragons are magic made might, they're, you know, fire turned flesh, they're kind of a big deal, they could turn a lot of different things, so them used as currency then was big, and the eastern influence that we see across this book, uh, whether it's the Pentoshi at court, the Lysini, the Tairoshi, I mean, there's a lot of different influences, we don't see that as much now, obviously, with the throne in modern day, not a lot of outside foreign influences and diplomacy going on back and forth, so... I don't think it's out of the question for it to have been a faceless man at all. Um, I think the Valyrians kind of, as we know, got to play God, especially in these early days. They really God modded everything. I mean, they had dragons. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to say no to dragons. Really and hard. They, really hard. One thing that just struck me during this conversation is that, and it, and it, 
is even referenced later in the book, maybe not intentionally, but the idea of the old fable, the fairy tale of the, the goose that laid the golden eggs. I mean, that's literally what we have here, right? We have dragons laying eggs that are insanely valuable, <laughs> even right. if they're fossilized. And that's, and then later we actually have the humorous anecdote that Mushroom tells us that Aegon II actually sat on an egg to try to hatch it, <laughs> which is like a chicken, right? So, hmm, yeah. yeah. Humpty Dumpty did have a great fall. He did. He did. <laughs> he did. A great fall from Sunfire from about 20 or 30 feet above the ground, breaking both his legs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bela. Stop. This is my favorite. <laughs> That's my girl. <laughs> yeah. So also a uh, shout out to uh, Grant Dickerson, longtime supporter and a friend of the community. He's been working on a, a project for helping to uh, alternate ways to search uh, through the database of A Song of Ice and Fire materials. That's uh, something he's been working on for a long time. He also uh, suggested a parallel to Septon Moon, a real world parallel, which is Sun Kim Moon, the uh, cult leader. And uh, I didn't have time to do the research because he sent me this message earlier today so but he's got the same name and he was a cult leader that had all these women and so on the surface that sounds real sim similar so i encourage you all to look that up on your own i'm gonna do the same and uh that should be fun okay um so that uh, as far as that goes with megor i really yeah, i really like lady gwyn's idea there that that could be a connection between the um the egg thing so let's see let's move onward to what's next we have uh, the fall of Magor, we talked about enough, I think, but there's a couple of little things I wanted to throw out there. Um, one of them will be the idea that Visenya not liking Tiana, which we mentioned before. Do you think there's any chance that Tiana took out Visenya like she killed her? Uh, Visenya was old enough to have died on her own. There's no need to theorize this. But considering just how disastrous her death was for Magor and just how much his, he just couldn't handle it, uh, how badly things went for him, how his reign fell apart. I don't know. It's just worth considering, even if I don't know that we can really get any answers out of it. I think worth considering. I mean, look, they're, they're these two mighty, powerful women, obviously in some sort of conflict or, you know, contest for Magor's affections or attention or power over him or what have yeah. you. So. And if she was trying to kill all his other... If he was trying to kill all his other wives, then it would make sense to take Visenya out too, just to be like the one person that's controlling him, you know? Mm -hmm. So that would fit in with her, what she was maybe doing there. Uh, what do you think, Chloe? Um, I think the only problem there is that once you get rid of Visenya, and then you have, obviously, of Reyna out, uh, you know, biding her time, and then you have Magor, and as we learned, Tyanna obviously didn't really like Magor enough to, uh, let him have heirs or a happy life. So <laughs> so I don't know exactly if maybe she would have taken Visenya out because once you lose Visenya, that that uh, you know, that grip that Tyana has of power probably gets a little looser. Uh I, I think that the only problem here is that like meta level will never learn if yeah. it was or not. This was kind of our last ditch effort to learn that, I think. You know what I there's a lot of like a lot of the mysteries left in Fire and Blood suck because part one, you're like, oh, well, more than likely, like could maybe learn in a later volume, but probably yeah. not. Probably never gonna learn anything more. So 
Visenya may have just yeah, died. It seems likely enough. This time. Yeah, I mean, and if she wanted, if Tiana wanted to kill Visenya, maybe she could have done it sooner. I don't know. Yeah, but it, but if she did it, I guess it was sneaky because there's nothing in the book that suggests it was foul play. Uh, so yeah, that might be just uh, that might be a bit of a reach. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Viserys, poor second son, uh, third born of um, Reyna, I believe third born. Alsan was last. Aegon was second. Reyna was first. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And so that was, that was hard. Like I, at first I thought maybe he wasn't, maybe that was intentional. Maybe he was becoming a bit too much like Magor, but no, we're told that he was popular. He was a nice kid. Everybody liked him. I guess they just couldn't do anything. I guess they just couldn't bring him. So that must've been really hard. She had to, Reyna had to abandon her son knowing that Magor would probably do something like that. She probably hoped it wasn't nine days of torture, but she had to know that was a possibility. So that really colors Reyna's, um, anger later, and it's a wonderful suggestion for her motive to have killed uh, Megor via assassination. So now we have the succession part. This is the part I think is particularly important, and it comes with some important details that are also potentially foreshadowing. For example, the the triple marriage is interesting. I don't know if there's going to be any sort of triple marriage in the Song of Ice and Fire. I guess there could be. I don't think so, but there could be. You guys say so if you think there will be. But more importantly, I think is the the notion of a female heir, the succession crisis, and then this baby swap. So the baby swap, that, of course, has a lot of relevance. Uh, so l- l- you guys should weigh in here. Um, Chloe, you go first this time. What do you think about the baby swap? I found it really, really interesting that George, you know, put a baby swap in here in general. Uh, it makes me wonder in the current modern text what baby swap we will see if Aegon, you know, that whole baby swatch... Her fluffle will get switched up. Um, it was so they were six, right? It was six when she baby swapped them. Um, and it's interesting because their personalities, like we, you can tell if you before you even get like the confirmation of the baby swap being hundred percent done, their personalities change in the story. So I really like how that was done. I uh, I really want to see what comes in the main text if it's going to be. You know, Aegon being switched and it's a Blackfire. Aegon being switched and it's with some other kid or what happened there. Good call. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Gwen, what do you think? Well, I, yeah, I think that it's like, it's interesting that he introduces this idea of a baby swap. And it's we talk about that so much in the fandom. And he puts it there like for a reason. I mean, you know, we're looking at uh, uh, Duncan Egg just to reach out for a second and one of the things I pointed out in our analysis is that he talks, Duncan Egg, the first story is technically, you know, a, a Targaryen in hiding. So that's a theme that we kind of do to death until it's done in the fandom. But those things really exist. So I, I think the baby swap, it's there for a reason to bring our attention to that. And we've got all kinds of, you know, the obviously the obvious one is Aegon, Fagon. Um, whatever kind of convoluted swap that turns out to have been. Um, you two both. other ones. Yeah, you two yeah. both wrote some some other uh, p- potential parallels, some that have already happened as well. I mean, it's, it's harder maybe to guess which ones will happen, but you've, you've I see someone in our notes here. Go ahead and uh, why don't you all throw some of those out there. I think some of these are pretty cool. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead, you do yours. <laughs> uh, Eliana in chat, my uh, love of my life, Eliana from Girls Gone Canon, did just throw out there too, of course, Eamon, and monster were just switched in the main text. Right. That's an obvious one. That's a one huge as well. one. Yeah, very good. Yeah. yeah. 
Should have thought of that right away. Yeah. 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 Um, We see Viserys 2 do it as well on the Gay Abandon, Mm -hmm. which great boat name. I love that. Uh, Viserys 2 is on the Gay Abandon. And of course, Varys is claiming to have, you know, not switched to babies, but probably did. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, That's the most most straightforward one, probably. Right. And then Lady Gwen, you had another one, I believe, right? Yeah. You know, I've always felt um, that the... A Chardin's stillborn daughter that Barristan talks about, uh, very likely, could be uh, could actually have been a born daughter who turns into Illyria Dane, allegedly Ashara's younger sister. That sort of thing happens in families. It happened in noble families. It happens in I know a family. It happened in real life oh, <laughs> in the twentieth yeah. century. You know, uh, um, unwed mother has a baby and passes it off as her younger sister so um so you know even if ashar is still in hiding elsewhere um, <laughs> with two with other children that first <laughs> what who that, said that? <laughs> that that first one obviously was you know i think on the timeline would have had to precede that so i'm voting for Illyria there I told y'all she's the biggest fan of uh, Shara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, the only way Illyria would happen is if Ned and Ashara did happen, and that's a whole other podcast, so we're not even gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for some other time. But the timeline yeah. does line up, just saying. It does. It were does. you disappointed that there were not, or were you maybe kind of expecting there not to be much Dane action in this book? There wasn't a lot, but we did get uh, a little bit with Cerise. Clarice, Cerise? I think it was Clarice. Is that her name, maybe? I think, or Chris? Yeah. Clarice? I'm Clarice. Close. It's something, okay? It's a C yeah. name. Yeah, right? And it was going to be the marriage to Marigold, uh, so that's kind of perfect there. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I got really excited. I think, like, when I first opened the book, I'm pretty sure I tweeted out, like, Dane first mentioned this page. I want to say it was at uh, Joe Magician. I think I was yelling at him about it. But, yeah, uh, that, there was still some good Dane stuff. I honestly, I just told myself going in, there's not going to be anything because I don't want to be disappointed. Good, good so. policy. Very good policy. <laughs> yes. Um, so let's see. Let, what do we have next? We have uh, Tiana's confession is interesting. Maybe the confession is a little less interesting than the implications of it. Uh, first of all, the way, reason she confessed, I think, is pretty straightforward. It's the same reason we have that sergeant who's about to be burned to death in Stannis's army insults everybody so that they kill him before he's burned to death. So he doesn't have to. So he gets the lesser of two evils. Being Having your throat slashed is preferable to burning to death. So that I think that's what Tiana was doing here. However, it's not necessarily... That doesn't make it a false confession, necessarily. Uh, so she avoided being tortured by admitting it. Magor just killed her outright. But... This creates an interesting conundrum. She predicted Eleanor Costain's babe would have the same issues as his other babes. So that gives her a lot of credibility as to her poison claim being real. However, we already have other, we have these other cases of Targaryen babies coming out like dragonish, lizardy, reptilian babies. Does this poison sort of trigger that in the womb or is does this kind of undermine some of the the magical blood argument what do you guys think i think it's is a, a george kind of threw a, a monkey wrench at us i think with this one um let's see uh, chloe you looks like you had a lot of notes on this one you go ahead yeah i uh, i think it's really confirming the malformed baby obviously um there's also the idea i mean okay obviously when it comes to all these three different brides with these babies. This is an exact telegraph of Jane Westerling 
and Jane Westerling and abort efficiency, you know, and killing off the baby. That was really interesting that he straight up was just like, let's just choose another Jane Westerling and have her <laughs> yeah, have some monsters. <laughs> Little on the uterus there, George. Uh, but <laughs> I'm like, we get it. We understand. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting with all of the, if she poisoned the other wives, they all had these malformed babies. It's not only giving us, I don't know, even like a whisper of a look into Tiana's motivations because we don't really get her motivations. And there could be three to five different ones. You know, she what she slept with both Alice. We're told as a rumor of that. That was she was a paramour of Alice Haraway and Magor. And then, you know what, she got jealous and killed them off, or she hated Magor, or, I mean, and I know Lady Gwyn has a lot of thoughts on this, too. There's so many different things, and we aren't going to get that narrowing down, so that's frustrating. Yeah. We yeah, may get yeah. some other parallel situation that is so familiar that the answer given in that one feels like the answer for this one, but that will still not ever, that won't be proof, but it'll be something. Yeah, it looks like, Lady Gwyn, you got a lot of notes on this, too, so go yeah. for it. My notes, I mean, you know, it really amounts to a lot of questions because we we can't really find answers but it all it strikes me as a bit as a cautionary tale about torture um the idea that starting with the alice haraway situation you get anyone to confess to anything by torture like look let's look at the blue bard and what's happening with cersei and marjorie in the main story uh same sort of thing so tiana sets up I, I'm wondering, this is me, you know, sort of, thing. she sets up this whole Alice Haraway affair uh, to get a few dozen confessions through torture that are probably spurious. Um, do, what, what were her motivations? Was she doing it because Magor asked her to? Was she trying to please him or help him? Save face? Whatever. Did, did she actually poison? I tend to think that that the babies were the babies. They're just, they're dragon babies. They're, you know, these malformed dragon babies. Whether she did something to uh, bring on these um, miscarriages or if she simply maybe uh, took advantage of it in a very strange way and first used it for Magor's benefit, weirdly, and then used it against him and then finally to her own purpose so that they, she could, you know, get that um, that death that she wanted instead of being tortured to death the way Alice Haraway was. My guess is she never saw saw that coming. Probably not. Like she, That certainly wasn't her endgame. And that's, like you right. say, that is, but but on the other hand, what was her endgame? It's very difficult to, to understand, like, what, she, what her ambition was here. And... One thing I, I like about, in particular, that I think is a really good point you make there, too, is that looking at it the opposite way. Here's Tiana, masters, Mr., Mistress of Whispers. So if anyone else is doing this poisoning, she could have revealed it. So she, more than anyone, knows that if she's not doing the poisoning, then no one is. So, I, so your point being that maybe she just made that up because she knew it would happen because hey it happened all these other times it's not a tough prediction to make she magor's had this many abomination babies is it really a prediction like oh did she really see the future or did she know because she poisoned them herself well maybe but yeah but if it happens three times then she's just yeah it's gonna be the fourth one's gonna look the same like that's not really going mm. out on a limb and maybe she knew something 
that's not in, I mean, now we're going sort of like extra text, but could she mm. have known something from these kind of lowborn women that he may have, you know, had affairs with? Uh, there could be other little dragon babies that she knew about. So she may have had more evidence. Who knows? You know? Yeah. I don't think we'll ever know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we will either. <laughs> no. Definitely not. It's like if you take Melisandre, like a pinch of Melisandre, and shake it over Miri Mazdur <laughs> and then put her in King's Landing as the mistress of whispers. You know, I think there's a lot of that. And it does set the stage for Daenerys' first baby, you know, when uh, she has her stillborn and it's monstrous and scaly, et cetera. Uh, it sets the stage for that similar genetics thing going yeah, on. There wasn't any poison in there. I mean, there was interference, but it wasn't poison. You know, I mean, you mm -hmm. could maybe say... In a sense, it was poison, but not literally, you know. Yeah. Um, so it kind of works as a literary parallel, and the, a lot of the details line up, too. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I, and I think George is really doing that kind of thing he does sometimes where he gives us gives us an answer, but he clouds it a little bit. He doesn't – it's not totally clear, either. He gives us more uh, possibilities, so we can't be fully settled. Yeah. One little footnote to this whole saga with Magor and all his kids is there's a kind of a throwaway line much later – um, that comes when Jaehaerys finally starts letting all these people out of prison that Magor had thrown down in there. Um, and they were, part of the reason they had to stay down there so long was because Jaehaerys couldn't free them during his, uh, before he was come of age, because he didn't, his decrees didn't have meaning yet. And the maester was running things for part of the time. So, you know, he, uh, it, it got put on hold. Which was bad for some of the people stuck down there. But the mention is of these, quote, lowborn trolls named as Magor's whores. So apparently he had, like, a squad of women in addition to all his wives. And he didn't have kids with these women either. But there's no mention of, like, these abomination kids. So I have two ideas here. One is that it's a little bit like Ares. Where you have a really aggressive master of whisperers keeping an eye on everything. And because it's, it's always been kind of suspicious that Ares never had any, well, confirmed mm. bastards. Despite sleeping around relentlessly, right? Yeah. No bastards that we know of anywhere. Um, and that's kind of weird. Uh, so maybe Varus was doing something. Like making sure none of those... You know, dalliances. A little tansy there. Yeah, so <laughs> maybe Tiana was doing the same here, something like yep. that. Because you contrast that to like Aegon the Fourth, who was just like, boom, kid, boom, kid, boom, kid. You know, just yeah. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then we have this where there's just nothing. So uh, mm -hmm. yeah, very, very interesting. We do have one claim later, much later, of a, a descendant of Magor the Cruel named Silver Denys, but that apparently is no one takes that seriously. And then he gets eaten by. Uh, Sheep stealer, I think so. Sheep stealer, yeah. So it up. there he goes. So that's that for Silver Dennis, um, the king who never was. <laughs> Dennis the menace, my Silver Prince. Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> Had there ever been a prince so beautiful? <laughs> Connington was born in the wrong era. <laughs> okay, let's do our let's do a little mid roll action here real quick. Then we'll get back into it. We'll go to. Uh, early Jaehaerys' minority, and go from there. So, um, it is time to give a shout-out to our Blood Riders. That is Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt, and Kohokoi, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kokavo, the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. 
Now, those names are pretty hard to say. We also have our Northern Champions who get shoutouts periodically. That would be... Uh, well, they're kind of hard to find. Here they are. Northern Champions. We have Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North. We have Winter's King, Lord of the First Men. We have Lady Ar Ardross, Mother of Wolves. We have Sir Brian the Returned, Knight of the Last House, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Song. We have Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone. We have Lady Cat Jones of the Big Pond, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Ginger's Honor. We have Jake Snow, a.k.a. Jacob Ice Eyes, the Bastard of the Last River. Lord Darren of House Rambler, the Last Hunt is Ceaseless. And Lady Bobby of House Mitchell. Roughly half of the names are are come up with by the people, by the patrons themselves, by the, our fellow Westorians, and about the other half are made up by me. So if you wanted to sign up and get a name, you don't have to come up with it. I can do that for you. Uh, so you have options. All right. Um, the only other announcement I have here for the midday stream here, actually I have two other announcements. One is I'm going to issue a, ha a big happy name day to Hema Helminth, a.k.a. Thomas Pappas, who is one of our mods and very generous supporter of the show all around and in the fandom all around. So happy name day to you. And if you are, want to be, if you want to ingest more of fire and blood, but don't have time to sit down and read all the time, I highly recommend Audible. Uh, the new, new reader uh, is uh, Simon Vance. So there's, there's a, unfortunately... Or, fortunately, if you weren't a fan of Roy Deutrice, there is a different reader now. He's very solid, very good reader. Um, and I'm very happy with... Uh, I've listened to... I think I've listened to it all the way through four times now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it, it just it just flows. It's just fun. So mm, definitely, if, you, if you're so inclined to take it in through Audible, uh, you can go to historyofwesteros.com and sign up through our link. And you get two free downloads. And you don't even have to keep the subscription... If you uh, and you can end up keeping those two downloads, even if you don't keep the subscription, so it's a very good deal, very good opportunity. You might you may find that you really like audiobooks that way. Hey, if you like podcasts, you you're halfway there. All right, that's that. Let's move on. Let's talk about Jaharis's minority. Uh, he came of a he became king uh, pretty late, um, a pre not pretty late, but not too long before he was sixteen. I guess it was about a year and a half. Not 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 a full two years even. So, but a lot happened in that year and a half. In fact, this is a bit of a a bit of a recurring theme in Fire and Blood is regencies. Right? We have several regencies, and they're very important. And I'm curious what that's going to mean in a Dance with Dragons, or not a Dance with Dragons. Sorry, Twins of Winter, because obviously there's not going to be a regency for John or Danny, probably. Although Danny is. How old is Danny? Is she 16? She's not 16, is she? Um, 90. Yes, she would be. Yes, she would be. Okay. So she's, if she's not, she will be by the time she, she will be like, yeah, she's, she's yeah. close. Uh, Fagon is like Tyrion thinks he's 16 to 18. So he's, he's of age, but of course, Tommen, Tommen has a regency right now. That's the one that we're dealing with. And there aren't really succession questions with him as long as he's alive in terms of nonviolent questions, but this is still, uh, t should tell us a good bit about what's coming. So let's talk first about succession questions. Because, of course, what we're going to have is this triumvirate of claims, potentially, where we have Danny coming in with the, like, kind of like Aegon the Conqueror and having a really strong claim. Then we have young Griff with a stronger claim, quote-unquote, but probably fake. And then we have John, whose claim 
if we were to use TV as a guide, potentially is stronger than Danny's. But if TV is just doing their own thing, we just don't know. Uh, so let's just call that an, a bit of an unknown. It's kind of up in the air. So either, but either way, John's going to figure into this whole discussion one way or the other. That's what really matters. So let's get into this, uh, starting off with who should have been, you know, how, how people saw it and who should have been based on argument. We'll start with, uh, looks like, uh, Lady Gwyn, you've got some good notes here on, uh, Megor's heir, uh, Erea and Reyna herself. So, uh, yeah, fire away. Yeah, so this is the sort of thing that'll just make your head hurt, I think. <laughs> there's so many strands of it. But arguably, Aurea was was named Mangor's heir, so she should have been the queen when he died. Uh, but she's a six-year-old girl, right? So then you get Reyna, the eldest child of Aenys. So just as arguably, she's got a superior claim um, to anyone, uh, certainly above her daughter, arguably. Her own birth had raised the question of whether the succession would go Aenys to Magor or Aenys Reina Magor. And I think there was some... It's left sort of vague what the decision was. It, it, maybe they never actually said that there had been a decision because Aegon was born a year later. So that they were able to kind of sidestep it. Uh but look, she doesn't want to press a claim. She doesn't even like King's Landing. She has no desire to have anything to do with this. So uh, once again, um, it it's, appears to be settled by Rogar Baratheon, who says, this is not Dorne, and Reyna is not Nymeria. <laughs> but really, they're able to sidestep the whole issue because she chooses to just stay out of it. Uh so it allows them to set a kind of precedent of sorts, even though it was kind of a, a non-issue in this case. I find it interesting that the ultimate solution is to keep Arya as Jaehaerys's heir. Very interesting, because yeah. she's the daughter of an uncrowned king uh, over the daughters of two previous kings, meaning Jaehaerys's own sisters. Reyna, his older sister, and Alisanne, his partner, but who arguably could have been his heir. I mean, you know. So it's just an interesting choice, I think, and I think it's one of expediency, since they obviously expect Jaehaerys to have kids. Yeah, you wonder if, like, John somehow becomes king and names Danny his heir, or something weird like that. I don't yeah. know. That seems... Maybe a little over the top, but I guess you know. I don't, I don't see the. I don't see Danny. I don't see like young Griff naming Danny as his heir. That seems. No, um, it's it's an odd thing when <laughs> brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles are marrying each other. You know, because you know, <laughs> is yeah, your wife sure is. or your heir because she's actually your closest living relative, or it's it's weird, and they have some weird precedents that they set. Um, so. Yeah, you wonder too. Um, also about this, uh, it's interesting because, of course, the the Rogar is sort of painted as like a bad guy here, and in a lot of ways he he kind of is, but in a lot of ways he's not. Um, and at the time, we have to remember that at the time, he didn't want Jaehaerys and Alysanne to marry, of course, because uh, and he had a good reason. Um, I think what I think if we're being fair, it's his methods to try and stop the marriage that are problematic, very problematic. But yeah, right. the idea that they shouldn't get married in the first place was shared by Jaehaerys and Alysanne's mother, as well as uh, Reyna. As a lot of people were like, yeah, this is not a great idea because of 
look the faith are still out there rampaging (laughs) it's really it really is a a a big problem for the religion of this entire country uh, that you guys (laughs) are about to happened yeah yeah (laughs) exactly we did this (laughs) so so rogar and Alyssa and all at all had a point you know they definitely had a point but they were wrong in the long run because uh, for reasons they probably couldn't have foreseen the reason this worked was purely the talent of Jaharis and Alisand. Like, they made it work. They rose above this giant difficulty and just defeated it. And Rogar and Alyssa probably weren't wrong to think that that was too much of a challenge for them. You know, or for anyone. They, they, uh, you know, Rogar having the attitude he has, being like, I can do this, I can do this. If he had turned his attitude towards, no, we can get them to accept this, eh, maybe that would have been better. But anyway, Chloe, what do you think? Um, you haven't waited in a minute. Let's, uh, let's get your thoughts on this. Yeah, it totally sets a precedent, like Lady Gwynn was saying. We're talking about this on our Dance of the Dragons episodes we're doing on Patreon right now, and we've gotten pretty deep, and this is what pretty much this unclear secession and Reyna, you know, not actually having that birthright is pretty much what starts and makes the dance really happen. Uh, you get the same thing of, even with Jaharis, he says to Alisan, well, you know, our daughter's birthrights, eventually, he says, well, they can marry their brother, just like Aegon did with his sisters, and that's how they'll rule. Uh, so it's always been this unclear, murky thing, even when Rhaenyra's clearly named the heir, you know, goes through a ceremony. A lot of people see it. They swear some vows and stuff. And it's uh, it's interesting that you get in the dance Aegon too saying, you know, well, let her come to me, just like you get young Griff saying, oh, well, I'm not going to her. I'm just going to go for the throne first. So, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, so here's another uh, another thing to think about. Um, we have as we have in our as we as we see in the dance later, this is something that kind of comes back and forth until it's sort of supposedly, I, I want to say, quote unquote, settled by the end of the dance. They because it doesn't come out. Not that it's necessarily settled permanently. It just doesn't come up again. We don't have the issue of a female heir uh, being passed over in a in, in any kind of large scale problem or any kind of, you know, there's no, there's no succession crisis like that until maybe now in A Song of Ice and Fire. So Westeros sort of, that's why I'm saying it's sort of settled. It wasn't maybe permanently settled, but it's settled for a long time. But yeah, so there's like issues like gender and youth. They come up a lot. And the youth thing is really interesting because uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a thing for Tommen, um, especially because Tommen really is just a little boy. He's more of a little boy than even his age is, which is sad because that poor kid's going down. Uh, possibly literally, like like little Joffrey falling off a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we have to joke about it to make ourselves uh, at peace with it. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense. Like, I, you can kind of see why no, why you wouldn't want to have a six-year-old as king. Yeah, like that, that, right. you could get that argument, but that's not a, that's a problem with monarchy in the first place, really. Uh, so, anyway, so the, that I don't think will matter a whole lot, the whole regency period, but except for whatever we else we get from Tommen's uh, regency period, which is still ongoing. So we have Alyssa named as regent. Now, Alyssa is a little maybe... Maybe I just didn't look closely enough, but Alyssa feels a little underrepped in this book. She maybe is a little bit murky, a little bit hazy. But she does have some pretty big moments, even though she's kind of in between the lines a lot of the other times. So let's talk about Alyssa for a minute and how she handled being regent. Because uh, I think there's some parallels to the modern series. Reyna gives me some Cersei vibes, but Alyssa occasionally does too, but neither to the, not to the degree that Cersei is, but similar circumstances in some ways. So 
let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Chloe, your thoughts on uh, this transfer of power issue with Alyssa and Jaharis and uh, potentially how this might play out in A Song of Ice and Fire vis-a-vis transfer of power, perhaps from Tommen's regime over to Young Gress' regime, which we may see that happen. I think especially with the Dornish coming to the capital, there might be a little more to explore there because, I mean, we're on the brink of civil war, right? You have greens versus blacks in King's Landing right now, (laughs) soon to be versus red and oranges as well, you know? Uh, (laughs) So you just, there's a lot going on in King's Landing. People are going down, and I mean, it just so happens that if Tommen dies and the Tyrells get canceled out, I mean, who do you think the Dornish would support? Mm. Yeah, well, <laughs> good point. Good point. Gold shall be their crown. I mean, uh, it's it's something that I think is just so it, you can already read the scenes right now of Cersei and the small council rolling her eyes about Nymeria being on the council and Tyene infiltrating the faith and just all this stuff that's about to just go, no pun intended, kaboom eventually in King's Landing. But there's something interesting with the way uh, that the rain began that Jaehaerys, you know, said no, no, we're not going to execute. There won't be trials. I, it feels like something we might explore with Aegon the Sixth reign. Uh, he's very kingly in his whole education. The way he chose Duck for his Kingsguard kind of makes me feel, uh, I don't know, He's he's been raised, you know, to, from his histories, his seven-pointed star, his courtesies, his sums. He's uh, very masterful with the sword. Uh, with the Dornish being bloodthirsty, we might see that kind of change a few things for revenge, but... I'm interested to see how he shows mercy to the lords that bend the knee, because his rule really could be great, even though built on a huge lie. Right on. Well said. Um, and I also, to add to that, um, I think that what something that Jaharis did that I sort of expect Aegon to do, but I'm not sure, which is that he's going to try to be a good king. Like, he's going to try to be like a conciliator type, where he's going to not just execute a bunch of people for treason. He's going to try to pardon people and try to be the good, nice guy. Because that's what Varus has built him up to be, right? Varus is like, oh, he's going to be a good king. He's going to rule well and wisely. And he's going to tame the, the realm. He's going to tame the chaos and, and oversee peace. Uh, so here's a quote from Jaehaerys that I think we're going to see Aegon maybe do something like this. And it's not going to work, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think. But, but he's going to try. There will be no trials and no executions. The realm must see that I am not my uncle. I shall not begin my reign by bathing in blood. Some came to my banners early, some late. Let the rest come now. And that's like a, that could be like a thesis statement for his reign, I think. But this is happening during this transfer of power when people are both being arrested or pardoned or they are potentially in some cases they're asking for clemency. In some cases, they are like Alyssa and Reyna. In some cases, like really want to come down on hard on certain people. Like anyone who was around for the torture of Viserys, anyone who was around for the death of uh, Aegon, who did nothing when Aegon rose. Like that, a lot of bad blood still. But Jaehaerys is like, no, and that's a big deal that he got his way because he's he's underage. He couldn't like they could have just like later when Aegon the Third does some of these things, they're just like, no. You don't count yet. Sorry. They listened. Like, Rogar, on most things, listened to Jaehaerys. And Alisan, too. So, uh, I think that's really, really neat. Um, and good point also, Chloe, about the, the Dornish, that your the attitude of theirs is different. And that this, especially this particular Dornish that are we're dealing with right now, are not shy about 
taken some people out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So here's another couple of uh, super chats. Good question here from Stannis Baratheon, as well as a question from uh, McCall. So we'll do these here um, in order. First one is from McCall, Inc. as Rain. She says, doesn't it happen with the children of the traitors that Rhaenyra has killed? They have firstborn daughters, but choose to name their younger brothers as heirs. Yeah, this is something that Corlys argues about. They have um, a dispute, one of many disputes, where it's almost like that stereotypical movie slash TV show thing where you have a person looking at the camera and it's even even Game of Thrones season one does this where Ned is staring at the camera and trying to decide whether to go to King's Landing or not and you have you have Maester Lewin over one shoulder and and Catelyn over the other shoulder and Catelyn is being the good angel and Maester Lewin is being the bad angel in the book it's kind of reversed but that's not important um so here it's kind of the same thing where you have you have uh people advising giving this advice um, Corlys is kind of usually the given, one giving good advice and Damon, the rogue prince is over here no, just have them executed or no, don't pardon them you know, he's just like <laughs> so violent so bloody, he's like, it's all these lessons we learned from people who are pretty violent like Tywin, Tywin's like nah when they, when they bend the knee accept it, you know, that's a lesson he learned personally because he, when he was a kid the whole Reigns of Casimir business, clearly he hadn't learned that lesson at that point, but he learned it later and this is the same thing we have here. We have people like Bloodraven who are like, no, punish all the traitors viciously. Who, and then people like Baylor the Blessed or, again, Tywin who are like, no. When they, when they bend the knees, let them rise back. So this is kind of an interesting thing because you have different kind of characters arguing the same point. Yet mm -hmm. they're sometimes they're characters that have nothing in common. Yet they both agree on this point. And there's characters that have so much in common that don't agree on this point. And I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated by that. So... Um, what do you guys think about this this episode with with Corlys and Damon and the naming of heirs in the post dance era? I know this is kind of jumping ahead a bit, but it's still relevant to what we're talking about. Do you have any thoughts on that with regard to Bacall's question? I think it's just it's a recurring theme that George gives us over and over and over again. It's even um, it, it's going to come up in a very small way. Um, in the case of Aegon the Unworthy, Aegon the Unlucky, number five, uh, because they were other heirs, you know, were they young? Were they uh, were they a girl? Were they, uh, God, we're not going there. But, you know, the, the whole question of being able to pick and choose how you want the succession to go. And that, I think, is at the heart of everything that's happened and is going to happen. And it is actually, this gives me a chance to bring this up, that's the crux of that Wars of the Roses influence on the story because that's that's really what that uh, particular real-life history is all about. And it's something that plays out in all uh, dynasties at some point. There's, as they get bigger and spread out, it gets confusing and they have to make choices. No hard and fast rule really can define everything for all history. Yeah, can you can do they have the right to name an heir that supersedes what the law says? That's yeah. kind of what it comes down to. A lot of times they're like, no, the law says this. And it says, no, you know, Viserys named Rhaenyra heir and, he, and the king is above the law. But yeah, but the king is dead. So does his word still carry weight? I mean, we saw Roberts didn't, but mm -hmm. yeah, when there's people with swords around, uh, things, things change. Yeah. So uh, similar, somewhat related question here. Um, we have from Stannis Baratheon, how do we compare Rogar, Tywin, and Corlys? Um, I think there's definitely a lot of similarities because in every single case, 
All three of these guys tried, were near the top of the heap, serving as Hand of the Queen in Corlys' case, Hand of the King in both Rogar and Tywin's case. And uh, also Corlys, you know, being part of the Regency later. But we have this um, situation where all three of them tried to marry the king or, or queen. Uh, Corlys didn't have to push it. It just happened in his case. But Rogar and Tywin both really like, hey, <laughs> marry my son, marry my daughter, you know, get that in there. And they both took... Tywin was less underhanded than Rogar by far, which kind of is like, yeah, that's a little odd. <laughs> but um, I think that, I don't know how I would compare them. I think there's a lot, they have very different personalities, but they all, yet they all had similar kind of ambitions. Um, but they, okay. they, they went about achieving those goals a bit differently. Um, I guess if we're being fair to Corlys, or being fair to the other two, Corlys didn't have to do some of the things they did because he was already like, their cousins. He's already like related to the Targaryens. I mean, so is Rogar, but that was a more distant kinship, and the Valerians were, you know, kind of established at that point. Uh, so yeah, what do you guys think, Rogar, Tywin, Corlys? Um, other thoughts on similarities between those guys? Well, like like you said, you covered. They have a lot of a lot of similar themes and things that they're dealing with. Um, but Corlys is clearly a superior of the three. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I have no words for how much I don't like Tywin. So, <laughs> yeah, and Rojar does a uh, a handful of things that don't make him much yeah. better. So, so I mean, and he's not awful, awful as bad. Just you know, besides the whole pr the whole uh, bachelor party thing, that's a fun. It's kind of messed up. Uh, he's not like. He's not a guy you want to bring home to your mom, let alone marry your mom, right? Like, you don't really, you're like, maybe no, maybe you don't, I don't want the knowledge that you're banging my mom out. Like, you of all people, dude, you're supposed to be my bro, my bro of the king, <laughs> and you're out there yeah. just pumping my mom. Um, but it, it, it's very indicative of all of these hands reaching for power. We get it with the high towers, um, trying to marry, you know, marrying Alicent to Viserys. Uh, it's it's the display of power. Something interesting is out of Oris and out of Rojar getting them both a Baratheon as a hand when previously we saw Baratheons as kings. Uh, we saw Renly, we see Stannis, we see Robert, and Rojar as the hand is literally like taking Robert out of the story but making him the hand for a milder king. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just a really interesting power dynamic that George played with there with that mm -hmm. character. Uh, Tywin, obviously, I mean, we see him, same thing, looking just to get that power up and get the hook in so that he can put his family's ambitions and names on the line. But Corlys, in a way, especially with all the secession crisis, I mean, the Valerians got screwed a pretty good handful of times out of the secession. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, we see they risk it all at many times for House Targaryen and keep that familial alliance and they keep coming in to help them and they get completely, their whole entire, you know, everything gets sacked. They lose the riches that they gain at one point. I mean, we don't hear about the Valerians now for a reason. You know, they're not, uh, we have Orain, and that's not really much to write home about. So. <laughs> Unless you're <sourcing. laughs> Uh It's interesting because you actually, if you, um, they, they're all hand during, a, you know, a, for a young king. So it's an interesting thing to, consider what ned might have been like had things gone a little bit differently um had he stuck around with joffrey uh he would have been facing these same 
issues, problems, how would he have... Well, we see what he kind of thought he was going to do, but... <laughs> Some, yeah, somewhat in out? reverse, right? Because he's like, he didn't want his daughter to marry the king. Right. all these other hands so, did. Yeah, he's like, I don't actually want this. So we see what he kind of would have done, and actually, so the failure of the policies of someone honorable like Ned, um, just interesting. Yeah. We have about uh, 30 minutes left. I'm going to do another um, Parallel Lives, and then we're going to talk about the new Tower of Joy. I think we're going to skip the Golden Wedding for now. We'll come back to that another episode. There's Y'all had some good thoughts on that, but unfortunately, we're not going to have time for it. So we'll have to hit some of the higher points here. <laughs> I know we really wanted to talk about this comparison. This is a huge one. I definitely wanted to get both of y'all's <laughs> thoughts on this, so we definitely wanted to skip ahead to this so we don't miss it. Um, so we'll start with the with the comparison, and then we'll get your all's takes on it. So starting with the big comparison of Sansa and Alisande, even their names have some things in in uh, in common, especially if you consider Sansa's alter ego Elaine. So Elaine plus Sansa equals Alisansa. <laughs> um, on the surface, I'll start with some surface comparisons, and then you guys can get uh, do some of the more detailed nuance, and then we get into some of the like serious foreshadowing comparisons. So Alisande. Poise, kindness, courtesy, cleverness. She's an advocate for people who are less powerful than herself. She and Sansa have the same eye color, which is notable because Alisanne is Targaryen and doesn't have purple eyes. She has blue eyes. Um, Alisanne is associated with Florian and Jonquil. Well, especially Jonquil, but, <laughs> but also Florian. Obviously, Sansa is too. Then we have some other things like... Uh, just their general attitude, just kind of the way they carry themselves, um, which I guess is... I've kind of already said that with poise. Uh, We'll have okay. So let's let um, Lady Gwen start off, or I'm sorry, Chloe, you start off here with the with some of your favorite comparisons here. Yeah, I've uh, I've done a little bit of writing on this before Fire and Blood came out, so I was really excited, especially the excerpt when it came out. That was a field day for me. I was just sitting on Twitter, going back and all my tweets, going, uh huh, uh huh. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I did something good, George. Thanks, man. Uh, he broke into my uh, my mind for this. I was excited because. Sansa has so many Alisane uh, references and just little digs, especially when you consider there really aren't many good queens in Westeros history, right? I mean, we hear about Nymeria, who was a badass, uh, a witch queen badass. We hear about, you know, all these Rhaenyra, not really nice connotations with her reign from what we hear. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but, you know, didn't end so well. And Alisane is really the biggest, best queen that we hear about that actually did things. I mean, some of the queens we hear about in Fire and Blood, great, but we still, they still, some of them, their personalities are still mother, you know, not really uh, much to go off of. But Alisanne, as we know, gave the Night's Watch, she forced the Starks to give the Night's Watch land, which was the gift. Uh, and Ned says, there's a memory that we read in the books that Ned says, you know, I want to resettle the gift after, you know, all this stuff is over. It's a dream for spring. So I'm pretty sure Sansa and John are completely going to resettle the new gift after uh, the war is over with wildlings and with those that were, of course, uh, leal during the fight. But something that's also really cool is George wrote Alisanne with Eleanor of Aquitaine in mind, uh, especially Catherine Hepburn's portrayal of her in Lion is Winter. I thought that was a really cool detail about Alisande, especially with the tall, unbent by time, unbowed kind of appearance, even when she got older. Uh, Catherine Hepburn, her portrayal of Eleanor of Aquitaine, she was the most eligible bride in Europe. 
of her time, skilled in sewing, dancing, singing, all that stuff. Her mother and brother die, leaves her the heir presumptive. Louis VI gets a claim on her land when he becomes her guardian, and her first marriage gets set aside eventually. She marries her cousin and acted as regent for her second son during the Third Crusades, and she was the queen consort of two kingdoms, France and England, and the Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right. She also outlived most of her children, which was an interesting detail George copied over with Alisande. So uh, there's this line George says in an interview, of course, that she was his most trusted counselor and his right hand. Nice. That was yeah. that was wonderful. <laughs> what a great rundown. That's yep. awesome. Yeah. Uh, before I move on to your thoughts, Lady Gwen, two things. Well, three things. One, super chat from Quado Cox. Quado. Uh, I called him Quado because that's uh, his nickname in our... Um, Crusader Kings 2 stream. So happy says, Happy New Year and long live the king. Thank you very much. In fact, we have fireworks going off in the background of our neighborhood. So these fireworks are for you guys, especially for uh, Quad of Cox here. <laughs> but also, um, a, an additional parallel to, Bri uh, to Sansa and Alisanne is the notion of a female protector. Ashea mm -hmm. is going to put up some awesome art by San Rixian. Here we have... Yes. There is uh, the parallel being that Alisanne has this badass female protector and Sansa has Brienne so that is right on um so that is really cool I like that a lot and so with that and especially because Lady Gwen you are wearing a San Rixian shirt please please give us your thoughts yes <laughs> uh well I my thoughts really are pretty much right in line with you, know, you guys all said it very eloquently everything already I really do like this uh parallel of Sansa and Brienne and Alisanne and Jonquil Dark and I think Chloe did you put in this note about maybe even having a um you know Sansa's gonna be maybe at Winterfell where they have warm springs so you could have that parallel of where um you know the attempt on her life possible, possible assassination, assassination yeah. attempt and you know in the in the warm spring area so uh i'm interested to see how that plays out and you know everything else you guys covered it so well um there's just so much good meat there and lots of room for speculation on where sansa's arc is is heading given that we know alisanne's entire Life for us, you know. <laughs> One thing I'm happy life. When I made the comparison on Twitter, I said, "Notice how no one killed Alisanne during her life. She oh. had kids and died of old age. <laughs> Long, very fulfilling life. I love that. So, <laughs> and and that that does reflect pretty well. I think Sansa is definitely in on the list of most likely to survive the series. She's up there on the top. Maybe not number yes. one, but she's pretty high on that list. I think. Um, yeah. So that lines up really well. Most likely to succeed if I was voting in the high school Westerosi yearbook. Yeah. <laughs> I'd vote Sansa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most likely. She suffered a good amount enough. <laughs> I like how George gave the, since Sansa's the redhead in the Brienne-Sansa pairing, that, that John Keel Dark gets to be the, the redhead in the mm -hmm. uh, Alisanne pairing. That's pretty cool. Um, so Shay had another uh, piece of art picked out. This is from Fire and Blood specifically, and this is Alisanne holding court. And it really just kind of gives a Sansa vibe here, this this image of of her just taking the time Gentle to talk to people. mother, font of mercy. <laughs> yes. yes. Singing right along. Yes, that's mm -hmm. cool. And then 
we have an incident, though, that might be foreshadowing um, that is very worth discussing. One thing that happens to Alisanne is that she has an assassination attempt on her. And it happens at Maidenpool, the site of Florian and Jonquil's legend. Uh, so, woo, um, that's really interesting. Chloe, you on your show, you've talked about some of the original... Sorry for the fireworks going on in the background. It is New Year's Day, guys, but <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> discussing, you, get, you said you're discussing uh, on your show, Girls Gone Canon, how George originally planned to have Sansa get pregnant with Joff's kid. So that still could be in the offing. Not Joff's kid, obviously, but a pregnancy. And, and then this assassination attempt on, San, uh, on Alisanne happens while she's pregnant. So please discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is something that totally could be a parallel. I'm not sure where how, where it could happen, because, you know, by the time Sansa gets her way back to Winterfell, I'm not sure if there's going to be a lot of time for her to be wet in bed and prego and walking around those hot springs, but it could definitely happen. I could see it as a thing. Um, I do think that assassination attempt is something that's really interesting because uh, at the time in the story, she was also, you know, her and Jahari separately were given companions that were supposed to sway them away from each other and push them away from each other. And this was really the thing that, you know, just 100% cemented it. Like, nope, life attempt, staying together forever. Screw the faith. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Lady Gwen, what do you think? Yeah, no, this is something that uh, I could just see Sansa in those hot springs at Winterfell and Brienne. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Saving I have her. so many yeah. thoughts. Um, <laughs> we've yeah. only had a month and a week or so to think about all this. <laughs> it's mostly <laughs> most. It's like we've been we've been going off of thoughts that we've had for years and years. We're building off of now. It's like ah, wait, we've only been thinking about this for a month. Come on, <laughs> it doesn't come quite as smoothly. There's a lot. Of, yeah, there's a lot of look. At, we're building this off of a little like one line. <laughs> yeah. in this book and imagine how many lines and trains of thought there are to follow <laughs> I think uh, with our remaining time we should talk about the retcon the the, tar the family tree retcon because <clears throat> I promised that uh, before <clears throat> and still didn't get to it and we're, we're, we're running out of time to even get to it this time so Unfortunately, that does mean the shivers is getting pushed again. Uh, we're going to tell we have the golden wedding, which I think might be relevant because of we might see a big wedding. We might see whatever, whoever hmm. young Griff ends up marrying. They, they could do some sort of big showy wedding kind of for the same reason, because it was like a big like, hey, this is the end of the chaos. Here begins the peace. And so I could see young Griff's regime doing something like that. So that's why that might be really relevant. Um, but yeah, we'll get to that another time. We'll talk about uh, the war for the white cloaks. We'll talk about the new Tower of Joy, which I was pretty excited to talk about, but unfortunately we are not, uh, we only have, well, not enough time is what we have. So let's <laughs> talk about this, uh, this family tree retcon, which is really strong, uh, really telling, and it's so telling that it might be fake because George definitely is learning how attentive this fandom is. It's funny how he didn't necessarily realize how attentive we were, uh, and he's starting to get that. And I think that means he might start trying a little harder to fool us. Um, he pointed out specifically that there are red herrings in this book. Um, we have no idea what's a red herring and what isn't. Sometimes we know what one is like in, in, in the Winter, or sorry, in the Dance of Dragons when uh, there when Lord Borel talks about 
the literal fish story with regards to John Stor- John Snow's birth, that's a red herring. It's an actual. There's actual fish. It's Melanie red herring. Oh yeah, and the Melanie red herring, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. There's- or Harold Herring, yeah. like herring. <laughs> The blue and red checkered herring. So there are, George does this, but we can't, sometimes we know, but we can't always know. So anyway, let me lay this out, uh, all the details, and then you guys weigh in with what you think this means. So the change was this. Originally, the firstborn uh, child of uh, of Jairus and Alisan was Aaron. A-E-R-Y-N. Of course, it's the Targaryen spelling of Aaron. Uh, instead of Daenerys, now we have, what we have now is a firstborn Aegon. Uh, we may have had the Aegon already, but that Aegon died as an infant, uh, like, almost immediately. So, what we have is this. We have firstborn Aegon, secondborn Daenerys, thirdborn Aemon from uh, Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Now, think about it this way. Then, Jaehaerys and Alysanne's time, Aegon is born, he's the heir, he dies, making it Danny. Then, Aemon is born who supersedes Danny. So, now compared to the current situation we have in A Song of Ice and Fire, Fagon's claim comes before Danny. If he if the Slayer of Lies prophecy is fulfilled, then he dies and she becomes superior again claim-wise until John potentially supersedes her again, and if John's real name is Amon, then man is that on the nose. Like boom, like super on the nose. Like and the thing that that's so big because George went out of his way to change what he'd already done. Usually, a retcon is a last resort of an author who has made a continuity error. He screwed up. He or she has made a mistake, and they're like, well, I gotta fix this. So, but there was no mistake here. George just was like, I'm gonna change this. And he changed it to something really stunning in terms of Mm. this whole claim succession situation. So, I know... uh, Jen, you have uh, an ex- exclamation point mark here because you're you're a fan of <laughs> John as Amon, whereas yes. I'm kind of on the fence, Aegon or Amon. Yeah. I'm not sure. You're a big Amon backer, so yep. you go first here and and tell 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 us what you think about all this. Okay, first of all, Aaron. Yeah, um, <laughs> maybe that's why he got rid of it. <laughs> he was just like, that's just not doing it for us. So maybe maybe I'm wrong that he did that he did make an error after all. He had to fix like, that. Where can I throw an E? <laughs> just get that one out of here. So we got rid of Aaron, which is. Just as well. But this um, is, it's just, as you said, it's so stunningly on the nose. And as you know and mentioned, a uh, big fan of John's real name being Eamon. I know the show suggested otherwise, but the show is the show and the books are the books. So there's quite a bit of textual evidence indicating that it could very well be Eamon. Uh, not the least of which is that the one that comes to my mind is that the tongue in cheek comment by John uh, when he's uh, uh, I think it must be with Rob when they're yelling about when yeah we well there's a bunch of that stuff too yeah I'm aiming the Dragon Knight he says but then he he thinks to himself nor was he aiming Targaryen oh yeah that one (laughs) nor Um, was he aiming Targaryen or is he or is he really we find that to be this sort of so I think we talked about that in our we talk it out in our John episode and uh, love it I absolutely love it and I would point out that Aegon Jaehaerys and Alysanne's Aegon died as a baby just like I presumably Rhaegar's Aegon died as a baby. I I wager I don't really remember, but maybe around even the same age. So, um, 
Yeah, so it's just so on the nose. I think this was a retcon that kind of knocked a lot of people's socks off for yeah, good reason. Real quick before Chloe, you weigh in, um, I wanted to say we also had this discussion, Jen, you, we all just talked about this name thing back when uh, when it was revealed on the TV show. And mm-hmm. at the time, it was like, it's so confusing because I, I really could see it going either way. I mean, during the Dance of the Dragons, there's two Aegons. Right. So like we already have that. Uh, and I was I was on the fence. This does for me absolutely push it a little back towards Aemon for me. I was I was leaning towards Aegon, but this now either evens it out or maybe even pushes it a little bit towards Aemon. Given Chloe. how, if I could just oh. say, well, bump sure. in yeah. one second, because given how much George has kind of pushed back against the, some of the changes the show has made, you know, in, in making mm. that distinction, the show is the show and the books are the books, and he wants us to be really clear about that. I wonder if this is a kind of way of him being like guys maybe it's not all set in stone you, good you call. might want to keep your call. open minds here so i like that okay yeah chloe uh now what do you think are you first of all tell us whether you're on team Amon, team Aegon, or maybe you're on team jaharis that's the other idea or Bas- Bas- yeah there's a lot of support for uh <laughs> for team jaharis right now there's a lot of support in chat which i used to be very team jaharis uh I don't know, man. It's so hard. I like, I lean. I don't know if I believe it would be Eamon either. I like it because of, you know, Nor's my name, Eamon, Eamon the Dragon Knight, especially when he's like, I'm Eamon the Dragon Knight. That little uh, blip in his memory. I love that memory. It's very bittersweet and like sad to like him trying to emulate the hero when it's like, John, you are the hero, buddy. Uh, <laughs> FYI, <laughs> Meta, um, you'll find it out at the end, hopefully. But uh, yeah, I, I would like I would be fine with Aemon, but part of me really thinks, especially with the whole seven Aegons, seven kingdoms, if it is Aegon, that has to be a book twist and it has to be really well explained. Like, I, I want some reasons. I want George to write me a handwritten letter explaining it to me. Here's the math. Here's the exact reason why. <laughs> this is the time. It was 283, the third month, and this happened. Like, I want it all. Okay, so just saying that if it is Agen, I will very reluctantly be okay with it if there's information attached. Very reluctantly. Hey, John. <laughs> that was the, that was part of the theory like in 96 people were like hey john that 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 works right you know uh, that that theory is really old <laughs> but it's kind of like the pink letter like i i lean pretty strongly towards it being not a mystery right that that um mm. that it was written by ramsey but mm. you can't really there's no like no it can't possibly have been mance there's nothing that says it's Mance is a valid theory, in my opinion. It's the same here, like Aegon and Aemon. Like these both have plenty to support them. Aegon, the Aegon stuff is maybe more recent, but the Aemon stuff is like early foreshadowing. Game of Thrones book, like early chapters, like he's mm-hmm. talking about Aemon. So, man, good mystery, George. You got us. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, <laughs> so the 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 aspect of this that we don't have time to discuss is the the um, the Targaryen disease immunity or lack thereof, or the possibly that the Shivers is magical, which would be why they couldn't resist it and we're going to discuss that alongside the winter fever which talk about a name that yells ice and fire winter fever mm-hmm. um so and both of those diseases come during winters that are uh almost a century apart and we all know there's going to be some disease during this coming winter of the song of ice and fire if, if not just grayscale maybe other stuff so that's really important but alas we are out of time, so we'll come back with all the things we didn't talk about this time, plus several more. 
any new questions you have in the meantime, send us send them to us at, at westroshistory at gmail.com or westroshistory at gmail.com or at westroshistory on Twitter uh, or join the Facebook group, ask questions there or um, just ask them in the chat next time. So I want to say thanks very, very much to my guests. We'll go through um, both of y'all. We'll have you tell us uh, where to find you out on the interwebs and please repeat what you have coming up next. We started with Lady Gwen at the beginning, so we'll start with Chloe here as we do our outro. Good. Let me just Daenerys this one. Here's the titles, right? The the layers of titles. Uh, uh, Girls Gone Canon, you can find us on pretty much any of the providers for podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. We're on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon. Two ends, not two ends in the second part. You'll figure it out. It'll be somewhere. There will be a link. Uh, you can find my work. I have a blog. It is www.liesandarborgold.com. Uh, and you can also find my stuff on Tumblr. I write on Reddit once in a while. And I'm on Twitter as at Lies and Arbor. Uh, we're working on right now finishing up our Sansa point of view. We're moving into Elaine Stone for a few chapters. Uh, and then after that, we have a very new point of view that we're excited about. We're not revealing quite yet, but soon. Mm-hmm. And soon. what you've done, some Patreon-only Fire and Blood coverage too, is that right? Yeah, we just finished up part two of Dance of the Dragons. That went up uh, just a couple days ago for our December Patreon episode. We're probably going to end it with probably part three or part four. Not 100% sure. That thing is in-depth. There's a lot to get through. <laughs> we like we finished our episode and we're like, oh my God, are you serious? There's still more? When do these people die? Uh, <laughs> when does it end? But we, uh, we're taking a break this month. We're going to do an Elaine Stone Winds of Winter and Future Sansa chapter do that this month and awesome. we'll be right back at that dance mm-hmm. of the dragons next month it never More stops like dance a thon of dragons right yeah <laughs> right <laughs> yes whoever dances the longest wins <laughs> okay and lady gwen please tell us where to find you and your co-host out on the interwebs and please tell everyone again what you're working on uh, in case they missed it okay well you can find us at radiowesteros.com or on twitter at Radio Westeros, uh, I am on Twitter personally at Lady Guinevere. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Come on over and give us a like, give us a listen. The podcast can be found like all podcasts, pretty much anywhere: iTunes, Spotify, Cast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are, or I should say, I am at work on my episode on the Sorn Sword which is a follow-up to The Hedge Knight, which we released uh, about a month ago. And following that, you might be surprised to hear we're going to do The Mystery Knight. Then... uh... No way. (laughs) Unexpected, I know. (laughs) From part two, straight to part three. What? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Stunning, stunning development right there. Uh, Then, as you mentioned, working on the Dance of the Dragons... uh, coverage with you that should be a lot of fun um that is progressing when we get through all that um really what's up next for us is our winds of winter uh preview that we've been we've been at work on and we're trying to have that lined up to be released prior to winds of winter coming out so we have our plates full this this year a lot of good stuff planned awesome yeah 2019 is going to be another strong year for the fandom even if we don't get the winds of winter but i'm sure we're all hoping we do but even if we don't we've got plenty to go with 
Um, I want to say real quick before I do our Patreon credits and our outro that I got we got a really funny comment here from Piano Diva Eleven who says, "What if John's real name is George?" <laughs> <laughs> it was beneath our nose the entire time. <laughs> Every <yeah. laughs> dang it, he got us. Aegon is just short for George somehow. I don't know. You just the G and the E and the O are all. It's all there. there. Yeah, it's all right there. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. Thanks for everybody who showed up live and, and participated in the chat. I saw a lot of big names from the fandom out there. I saw Eliana and LML and uh, Joe Magician. I'm sure there were other people, but I was a little too busy to keep too much of an eye on it. But thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, let's see here. Some some thanks. Thanks very much to Ashea for production, monitoring the chat, and handling all sorts of business behind the scenes. Thanks to uh, Michael Clarfeld for our video intro, and thanks to Joey Townsend for the music. And thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thanks to Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, Ryder of Maslacartho, the White Dragon with Green Scales, Horns, Wings, and Talons, Jinx of House Lear, Green Queen of the Rainwood, and Rumor Daughter of a Woods Witch, Ryder of Irogenia, the Sylphic Albino Dragon with Amethyst Eyes and Opalescent Wings. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, is a soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat, hand of, the, of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Lady Suzanne Sinistral is the learned, holder of the left-handed Valyrian shears called Penance and Hand of the Beard. Lord Jim the Fortuitous is of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormswell the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by Flagship Prince Damon. Charlotte Auster is Cor Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, Commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the Barnacle-encrusted Violet-hulled Mercenaria. She carries the Naker inlaid Shucking Blade Crasslover. Our small council includes Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, and Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort, the tastiest castle in the realm, Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donald. Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, Dual Wielding Glorious Morning and Little Lightwise. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwarewood, listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master, Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish, Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Lord Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring. Nevesa the Twin-Hearted, Suspected Skin Changer, Holder of Castle Carahelm. Sir, Fal Sir Valentin of House de Gen is creator of the Game of Predictions, free GOT predictions slash futures market. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island is protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. 
And Lady K of House Archer is Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of Wolfswood, of the Wolfswood, rather, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrels Bane the Mighty, Direweenie. Uh, our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council is includes Lady Maya Emerald Eyes, voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whispers. Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat, motto in the shadows we bear our claws. And Grand Maester M. Elizabeth is middle daughter of Leanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. We have a King's Guard, which is includes Sir Dollars D, longest tenured White Sword, Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk, Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star, and a few open slots. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hayma Hellmans. Happy name day, buddy. The same Sellsword Sentinel, uh, also Lady Nymeria of House Seapertle. Alexander of House Atreides from the House uh, from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard is Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious, Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades Fire and Ice and the Werewood Bow Rain. How well equipped is that? Our Beard Guard includes Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakheart the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Mane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, who got me some lovely Greyjoy shoes for Christmas. Thanks, Rita. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red, and brown. Stay frost. And Sir Tim Corgyle, Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Last but not least is the History of Westeros Night's Watch, which is led by... Mm, where'd he go? He's hiding. He's a very sneaky Night's Watchman. He is Lord <laughs> Lord Commander Benjen Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword Winter's Kiss, and he is backed up by First Ranger Zachnafane Fourfeathers, fastest bow in the watch, First Builder Magor Snow, aka Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentide, called Palewind. And now I can breathe. <sighs> Thanks, everybody, very much for staying through all that. Thank you for attending. We'll see you hopefully next Tuesday at 6 p.m., same time, same place, same channel. And hopefully you can make our Crusader King stream this Friday, also at 6 p.m. Eastern, 11 GMT. Thanks again to my lovely guests with their great takes. We learned a lot, I hope. I certainly did. And we're eager to continue exploring Fire and Blood with you each week. So until next time, Valar Reredus or Valar Relistenus. Adios.